0: Heterosexuality is a fucking nightmare. Not love. Okay, well, yeah, love, love is also a nightmare, but that has already been well-documented in books, films, a million pop songs, operas, and constant daily conversation. But the bigger nightmare is what we do with love, in this particular society and culture. The thing is, we don't like to look at that very much. The larger structure love exists within the expectations of gender conformity, the ideas about what a healthy relationship is and all of the societal pressure to marry, the difficulties of consent in a culture that tells women to hide their sexual desires way deep down, the power imbalances between the genders, nightmares, all of them. Then there is the tricky thing about how if you are a woman, in some ways, when you fall in love... You are falling in love with a representative of your historical oppressor. How any of us get around that mindfuck is beyond me. And what about men and the very narrow variations they are allowed on masculinity? Much more narrow than what's allowed for femininity in today's society. And how heterosexual women absolutely reinforce those rigid gender expectations by wanting to love and marry gender-conforming men. Men who do not conform, who are maybe softer and spiritual and less interested in the pursuit of money and power, are often left untouched and unloved. Heterosexuality is the dominant culture, and yet we rarely look at it as such. We prefer to think about love. Because if love is the problem, then there are solutions. We can work on our daddy issues in therapy, we can learn how to flirt and seduce. We can remove these barriers we assume are between us and love. But once we start to think about heterosexuality, about the societal context within which we operate, then we can just feel powerless. What are we supposed to do with the information that a whole gender, a gender that has some members we might want to love or kiss or rub up against, has been instructed not to want you or love you because you don't conform to your own genders, values, and norms. What on earth are you supposed to do about that other than immediately go walk into the sea? So here's the thing. I made this joke that I want to write a book called Heterosexuality is a Fucking Nightmare. Because it is, and it's true, and I was having, you know, like a week about it. And so I said this on Twitter. And by making this joke... I met the really lovely and fiercely intelligent Indiana Saracen, who emailed me and said she wanted me to write this book, and she could help. Since then, we've been having a correspondence about desire, love, sociology, consent, but also just personal stories of heartbreak and sexual regret. So I'm writing the book, and my new friend Indiana, who is off to Cambridge to get her PhD, sat down with me while we were both in Berlin so we could make some of this private conversation public. So I said as a joke on Twitter that I want to write a book called Heterosexuality is a Fucking Nightmare. And the funny thing about that was is that I got a really amazing response, including this lovely email from my guest today, Indiana Saracen, uh, who encouraged me to write the book and we've had very good conversations on the subject matter. So when I thought about doing this podcast, I really wanted to do an episode on specifically why heterosexuality is a fucking nightmare. So, Indiana. (laughs) The funny thing is, is that there does seem to be um, a difference between saying love is a nightmare and heterosexuality is a nightmare. And so I wanted to start the conversation there.
1: Yeah. So I think um, there are obviously, it's a Venn diagram, right? There are things that both of these issues, love in general and heterosexuality, have in common in their like nightmarish qualities. Um, and from my perspective, you know, I've read quite a lot of um, theoretical work on love that you know really investigates the way in which love can be this very destructive force in a person's life. You know, this idea of becoming undone by love. Um, which can be romanticized or it can be lamented, sort of depending on who's writing it. Um, But my frustration with that is that it seems to really ignore the ways in which, A, gender is a massive factor in how people experience the undoneness of love, um, and also the way in which heterosexuality is an experience produced by culture, right? Um, It's something that exists um, as a shared experience because of things like rom-coms, chick lit, I mean everything, the modern love column in the New York Times, like whatever it is, um, this produces expectations and norms about what we expect from heterosexuality um, that are very particular and and that we, you know, understand together. Um, Yeah, so I'd say that's my sense of the distinction. And it does seem a bit like a
0: lie when so much of the culture is pushing us toward the sort of the hegemony of the of the heterosexual couple um, and to live outside of that sort of monogamy mm-hmm. you know even even Freud said that the monogamous heterosexual couple is the entire basis of civilization, and if we don't live within that, then we're just in this sort of you know crazed natural state, God forbid <laughs> um, and so it does seem. But on top of that, that idea that heterosexuality and and the couple form in particular are um, so important to to civilization and to individual lives, plus this crazy propaganda campaign um, where we willingly just sort of um, create a fantasy about how love is going to complete us emotionally. Um, And to not look at the the gap between that of the structure and the fantasy um, and the way society does kind of depend on the couple um, in a a controlling kind of way, it seems like it's just like this kind of schizophrenic, crazy-making situation where reality doesn't line up um, with what's in your head,
1: right? Yeah, completely. And I think there's also an interesting moment right now, sort of in the contemporary West, where people are still on the one hand, very invested in these traditional notions of, for example, finding the one who you're going to couple up with and then completing you, completing your life and just living the rest of your life in sort of endless matrimonial bliss. But I think also at the same time, there is a somewhat widespread um uh critical I you know people I think now are especially because we don't arranged marriages are not the norm staying together with your partner for life is not the norm um you know there is a shared awareness of the fact that this doesn't work right yes. and yet people are also simultaneously deeply invested in it still. And so I think, I mean, you talked about it being schizophrenic in a slightly different sense, but I think even within the culture, like that it's sort of bouncing back and forth. I mean, what's funny obviously is that that is like the basis of so many narrative plots, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you, I was thinking about this the other day, watching a terrible um, romantic comedy if you took away monogamy, like the um the cultural demand to be monogamous and this sort of shared understanding of like, oh, but it's really hard, it doesn't really work, like ninety percent of our kind of mainstream narratives would just disappear. Yes. Like we would have nothing left. Yes. Um and I don't know, I mean that's interesting to some extent, but it's also like it I feel like it's preventing, you know, people as individuals and also preventing the culture from exploring you know, all kinds of ways in which people can live together and be intimate together. It's a, this huge sort of just endless cycle of bouncing back and forth.
0: Yes, and there's also this sort of problem of creating, trying to create something new within this particular culture a new way of of exploring or structuring love and intimacy is almost impossible, particularly when you have, you know, um, the wonderful novel, the Helen Garner Garner novel, The Monkey's Paw, about um, this sort of commune experience of in the 70s of women trying to experiment with non-monogamy and and non-possessiveness and Mm -hmm. not being jealous and how just men took wild um, advantage of that and caused a lot of uh, suffering and the competition between the women, even though it was supposed to be not jealousy, it was experienced directly as competition between the women for the male attention um, and to hold it for longer than the, than the other women. So it does feel like it's almost an impossible project to say... You know, even in open relationships that I know, that are, it becomes a competition between the male and the female partner to get laid more often. <laughs> and if one person is having like a lucky streak, the other person yeah. is just like, I gotta, I gotta get out there. Like I got <laughs> It just all seems so, so exhausting. <laughs> um, but one book you pointed me to, um, or the short story that you pointed me to, was um, Simone de Beauvoir's uh, "The Woman Destroyed." which I felt was so clear-eyed about and so unsentimental about heterosexuality and infidelity and the expectations for female behavior and male behavior and how a woman can be destroyed by that. Um, So I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about... um, when you first came to the story,
1: and what you um what made you think of it, um yeah, so I read this story first when I was about thirteen or fourteen, and had never so much as kissed anyone um and yet you know, sort of connected to it in a very intense way um, it's you know it's deeply depressing it's there in the title. Um, And I think also really clarified things that I had sort of witnessed in the world about the way in which our culture treats older women um, that I maybe had not really been able to articulate to myself because I didn't fully understand at that age, the extent to which women's value is tied to their sort of participation in this heterosexual matrix. Um, And yeah, I mean my connection with that book I think it's there are many levels to it. I mean one reason why I really love it I think is and this is a theme that that exists, you know, in De Beauvoir's book, uh, work overall um is I think an exploration of the way in which you can be really destroyed by love um and that it's not I mean this isn't a simple thing, right? Like you can be destroyed by someone who once did really love you who perhaps still does really love you in some sense and I think this is something that I find very interesting about heterosexuality is you know we we're so used to expecting sort of equating healthy love with reciprocity or or just love in general with reciprocity and yet when men and women are sort of you know move through the world in such different ways are socialized into such different sort of behaviors and have such different market values. I mean, especially when um, when they grow older, although at every stage of life as well the the woman destroyed is is focusing on the kind of older stage of life. Um, you know, how can we really expect anything that actually looks like reciprocity when you have these two vastly vastly different experiences sort of colliding? And then what does it mean for you know, a couple to be, very much in love and yet having this incredibly un imbalanced experience of the world um and then not to mention you know the the trope of of an older man having an affair uh you know who's a man who's been married for a long time you know much of that marriage may have been happy of course is something that is you know a huge part of our culture um and and that again, I you know is 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 relevant to this question of of what it means to have uh, a unit, a social unit, marriage that ostensibly is reciprocal and yet has all of this kind of cultural baggage of the expectation of how this is going to continue and perhaps unravel, likely unravel.
0: <laughs> the thing I think I liked the most about the story, at least the thing that I liked the most this time that I read it was. Um the fact that so this woman is in this marriage, and her husband is cheating, and the advice that her very close friend gives her is just be cheerful. don't <laughs> right. don't um, don't stress out about it, don't get angry at him. Don't have a legitimate emotional response to the situation, yeah. which just leads to this kind of internal prison, yeah um, and of course, she lashes out and then feels. A, a unbearable regret for that because then it's her fault that she's put, she can't respond in the right way. And it does seem like there's, um, so much in our culture that tells women don't have appropriate emotional responses to the stimulus, um, <laughs> pretend, be cheerful, be pretty, um, don't be angry or needy. Um, and then she refuses to give this woman an easy out. There's the sort of possibility of the lover, which I feel like if this story were written today, um, the lover would rescue her from this, you know, yeah. this terrible bind that she was in and, and she would experience this, um, you know, this renewed sexuality or whatever. <laughs> um, but um, because which we've talked about, um, so much of women's writing, is aspirational. It's Mm. you want the feel good ending to the story so Mm -hmm. that you feel like you will have a nice ending to your own Mm -hmm. terrible (laughs) fucking nightmare of,
1: of (laughs) heterosexuality. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's, I sometimes feel like one of the big problems with feminism right now is like a confusion between how, um sort of describing reality as it is and describing what we want reality to look like and there can be I mean that causes so much conflict and also so much confusion I think about around when people are sort of asking is this book or whatever feminist or not um is you know are we anticipating the world that we want to see or are we describing it you know as it actually is and that can um uh, I think, then there is, I mean, as I have said, like, to you before, like, I think that, um, that it does serve a certain purpose, this just the straight level of honesty, like describing reality as it truly is, especially when they you know, heterosexuality really does um, sort of function through a slight kind of conspiracy of silence, right? And this demand that you're talking about that women suffer in silence, um, and that they don't betray their beloved man by for example confiding in their female friends or for example confiding into (laughs) to a larger audience Mm -hmm. such as the readership of a book um but I also feel a little bit skeptical that you know this this act of of trespassing that um that demand for silence I don't think that in itself is necessarily where I would want to stop politically Um, I think we have to go beyond and you know with a whole range of actions whether that's sort of demanding more from men and that can take many forms including uh sex strikes which I'm kind of interested in um various forms of like withdrawal of labor emotional physical whatever I think this is something that's discussed a lot at the moment but doesn't necessarily happen very much um uh so yeah I think there's there's more to to go and and as for the aspirational thing like I don't think it's it's necessarily that helpful to anyone to to sort of write this fantasy of what you know what we wish heterosexuality or what we wish living a feminist life looked like um because unfortunately we can't like narrativize that into reality <laughs> right and this seems like this um there's a there's these tests
0: for if a book or a movie or TV show is feminist is if the female character is strong, Right. <laughs> the female yeah. character in the Simone de Beaufort <laughs> is not what you would call strong. And yet it's honest. And I think that that's a huge difference that we, there's such an emphasis now on portraying women only at their best. And again, in the, in the sort of aspirational mode of being strong and sexy and fulfilled mm. and etc., Um, even though that's not how women live their lives and experience, um, love and work and so on, and not all women are amazingly empathetic, um, and, uh, honest and, upfront human beings, women are assholes too. (laughs) So I, I, I am skeptical and sort of worried about this mode that we're in and thinking about, or even if the, if the label of feminist to a work of art where the artist is not explicitly labeling it feminist herself, um, whether that's a use even a useful thing a a useful designation or or label
1: certainly I mean I also think that of course you know this is a very sort of like capitalist way of thinking capitalist expectation of equating I mean what we often the phrase strong women our understanding of, I think, mostly is actually just successful women. Mm -hmm. I think the, I mean, especially historically, like if we're talking in terms of, like, aspiration or inspiration, you know, I think it's hugely inspirational that women have dealt with all that they have dealt with (laughs) throughout history and just survived. Do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Have felt a reason to get up each day, have managed to, you know, support all kind, you know, all kinds of people, um, you know, that their their task has been to prop up and and just keep going. I mean, to me, that's what I find, you know, very, uh, sort of very moving and and inspirational. But I also think that again, like that in itself, we can't just we're not at a point now. I think where that's like our highest expectation, right? Is that we just keep surviving in these, mm-hmm. you know, in this nightmarish way of being like (laughs) hopefully there's a little bit more out there yes
0: um and I know that I I, but speaking of aspirational (laughs) and I I talk about and write about and think about Elizabeth Gilbert too much (laughs) but I feel like a phenomenon on that level is interesting even if um the text is not um but, you know, she writes this very aspirational divorce memoir of she's freeing herself from one heterosexual relationship and immediately falling into another, um, and, but it's better somehow. And it's this aspirational, you know, you find yourself spiritually and you eat a lot of pasta and, and so on and so forth. And, and she sort of presents herself as, as this being of light and goodness and that she has suffered from the expectations of, that her husband have put on her about having a child and so on. Um, and then years later, writes an essay for the New York Times where she kind of admits to being um, an emotional vampire, where she's only interested in sort of um, a man if he's unavailable and if she can take his attention away from another woman and had this wonderful line that you pulled out, (laughs) um, which I, I would break into his deepest vault, steal all his emotional currency and spend it on myself. And I just can't help but think what a more amazing book Eat, Pray, Love would have been had she had that kind of insight into herself and a desire to or an ability to admit it and write about it and present it, but of course it wouldn't have sold 50 million (laughs) copies if she sort of um, was willing to... But women are always interested in reading themselves as... Um, or you know mainstream women's culture is always interested in in reading about how they're um, either victims or they are um, amazing and and magic and, Mm. and and so on and so forth yeah
1: I mean what I love about that this essay by Elizabeth Gilbert is that it's just this wonderful account of kind of uh devious behavior by a woman in a heterosexual context and this is also I mean a book that I have brought up a lot in our conversation is I Love Dick by Chris Krause um, and the reason why I love that book is is f- for this the same reason is because she's behaving badly she's behaving exactly how women are not supposed to behave and I feel like the public reception of that book, I mean, especially as it's gotten sort of wildly popular in the last few years, um, has tended to focus on this the, the victim side of it, right? It's like, oh, thank God this book exists, where a woman has admitted how sort of, you know, abasing and, and um, terrible it is to feel this really intense type of way about a man who is not interested in you and actually wants you to get very far away from him. (laughs) Um, And will use the legal system. (laughs) Right. And that, you know, that is interesting because to some extent we don't have many super frank portrayals of that, especially to the sort of level of uh, the extremity that she goes to. But what I find really wonderful about that book is that she, you know, then does all of these completely um outlandish things um and and models this kind of like really i mean as i've mentioned this scholar that i um who just describes it really well anna watkins fisher calls it a parasitical mode of femininity which i love because this notion that like being a parasite is i i feel like a kind of femininity i would sort of love to embody like you know we can't escape people try to i don't think i can escape the fact that my sense of my own femininity is deeply relational is you know deeply invested in in the kinds of you know care and nurturing and obsessive relationships i have with other people and because i can't escape that you know i'm never going to be this like you know sovereign self man who just exists as a mind or whatever why not just like really invest in that and say yes like i i gain power from these relationships and sometimes yes and maybe a fucked up way Mm -hmm. um but uh yeah I find that so and I feel like that's kind of got lost a little bit in a lot of the interpretation of I love dick but you know exact same thing with Elizabeth Gilbert I loved her description of just like reckless destructive behavior because I think that's sort of the appropriate response sort of to love in general but especially to heterosexuality you know why not respond in that way as opposed to suffering and silence and kind of slowly disintegrating? <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting, the response
0: to, obviously, the TV adaptation of I Love Dick and people sort of heralding Jill Soloway as, as some sort of queer hero, even though... Um, but um, But watching that show... And watching that storyline of obsession and too muchness and and, and and so on and so forth, like really dark, turn into a, oh, will they or won't they, fuck, yeah. <laughs> storyline. And yeah. that was the whole sort of building of the tension was, are they going to fuck or are they not going to fuck? That was horrifying to me. Um, I mean, a lot of things about that show were horrifying to me, but... The inability of, I don't know if it—if you just have to be, if just Jill Soloway isn't sort of, um, this is going to sound terrible, smart enough <laughs> <laughs> to think outside of the, this, this paradigm and to see that there are other ways of um, behaving and telling a story and so on. Or if it's something about television in itself that demands... Um, would anybody watch something if it doesn't have that um oh are they going to get together aspect (laughs) to it um I worry that people think that these two people are meant to be together somehow
1: (laughs) (laughs) right and that's the only thing that could like place them at the center of a plot you know as a couple although it's funny because obviously there are many examples of Films and TV shows that are sort of based around a man's obsession, uh, unnatural, unhealthy, toxic obsession with a woman. I mean, I've been really interested in this like genre of films that have sort of proliferated recently of like... Young Woman in Berlin in Peril. And one of them is this film called Berlin Syndrome. You know, as a young woman in Berlin decidedly not in peril, I'm like drawn to this genre and really fascinated by it. But yeah, so there's this one called Berlin Syndrome, which I haven't seen, but it is about, you know, this like carefree, you know, white immigrant girl who moves here and then gets like locked in a room or something Mm -hmm. by this sinister man. Um, and, you know, of course, this is, this is a huge, huge genre of of TV shows and films. And we don't need the will they or won't they. Although actually another film that I mentioned our correspondence, um, Amadovar's Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, is a really sort of, depending on how you look at it, hilarious, like infuriating, disturbing sort of manifestation of this genre where... Um, you know, it, it's both the unhealthy obsession, kidnapping narrative, and the will they or won't they, um, which, you know, tells the story of this young, beautiful actress who acquires a stalker, who then kidnaps her in her own home, and she falls in love with him. And then at the end, they sort of, they literally go off into the sunset together in a car with her sister, like happily approving the coupledom. And my generous reading of the film is that it's a critique of heterosexuality in general, although... I'm not sure if that's really what's going on. Um, but yeah, so I think, I don't know, like I like to think that I, I was very sceptical when I heard that I Love Dick was being made into a TV show and, and more so when I heard that Jill Soloway was in charge, although I actually do like Transparent, but I just sensed that things were going to go terribly wrong. Um and i i don't know i think that i believe that there's a way of representing this sort of very strange but also totally recognizable story that it that is i love dick you know in a visual context but i think our our culture is it's so barren in terms of you know other narratives like this that there's like pretty much no example i can think of that would be even remotely comparable very uncharted territory that went very wrong in this case, I think.
0: And I think when I, when I started to think about, okay, if I'm going to do a larger project on the subject, you know, pulling together the sources and who's written about it um, in an interesting way. And it was almost all women. Mm -hmm. And there have been few, not so few novels written by men that explore even the sort of downsides of masculinity or, but specifically understands love through heterosexuality because for them, they don't have to think about heterosexuality to them. It can just be love. And so then Mm. they can just list their grievances against, against women. Mm. And there are a few books like, um, Joseph, Joseph Heller's, something happened I think is really brilliant and, and so on. But, um, actually, the the uh, the film, and I was I was drunk, so it's possible that I'm wrong about this. but um basic instinct when I was watching it again, I thought was sort of really clever and interesting about the heterosexual dynamic. And so I made a male friend watch it with me. And he had seen it, but had forgotten everything about it. And so I was really horrified, um, to watch it again with, you know, with me pausing it every five minutes and being like, what do, what do you think about this scene? Um, but at the end of it, he turned to me and I was like, is that, is that what happens when you have to fuck men? Like, is that just a natural, I was like, yes, I think actually, I think actually that Beerhoven's onto something there. Um, but, yeah, find, trying to find male sources where there's some sort of standing outside of the dynamic, um, certainly queer writers have been able to do that, but heterosexual men themselves, it doesn't feel like they're able to see it in the way that women see it.
1: No, I think there is, I'm thinking about, so there's films that depict, um, or, or books, um, any. Form really that depicts sort of the the teenage boys experience of heterosexuality um to some extent perhaps can sort of like acknowledge uh vulnerability or you know the crazy making aspect of of heterosexual love in a way that you know films about more mature adults like don't tend to from this is from the male perspective you know don't really tend to allow for but even that it's like I feel like in that kind of genre it's women are inflated into this sort of you know goddess like um image because to the teenage boy you know he's so nervous and insecure and so he just sees all these women as these sort of like I don't know, like goddess, porn star, superhuman, intimidating figures, which again is just so flattening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then a kind of related issue happens, um, you know, in a lot of fiction or films or whatever that focus on adult men's experience of heterosexuality is again like the female character is just flattened. Like it's she becomes uh sort of, you know, just um, as a zone of like wish fulfillment and desire and and completely not someone with her own agency, um, you know, who is in, in some way sort of like in control. You know, her needs never have to be anticipated. Her feelings and desires don't have to be anticipated. She's mm-hmm. just this image, basically.
0: Yeah. And it's, I've been having very frank conversations with, Men over the past uh, couple months as, as I try to figure out this project. And it's interesting how many of their complaints, or not complaints, but their experiences um, coincide with one another, but mm-hmm. there's not a story about it in the wider culture, mm-hmm. um, about how sort of the expectations of, of masculinity and, and being the male partner in a heterosexual couple can cause real suffering. Yeah. But there's not that same examination of it. So I almost, um, it's important to me that when we talk about how heterosexuality is a fucking nightmare, that it's acknowledged that it's not just for, it's not just a nightmare for women. And I worry about a sort of male culture that is, um, incapable of having these conversations without um, becoming, you know, like, going into the Reddit direction or without the, that sort of uh, terrible, like, the Good Men Project uh, website or, you know, <laughs> like, to to actually somehow be able to stand outside of it um, and and examine it and also is women's culture, feminist culture – going to grant men the space to do that and I'm not always entirely sure that that's that that's true
1: yeah certainly um I think I mean like you my most sort of interesting the exploration of this that's been most interesting to me has been interpersonally it hasn't been through through any kind of reading or other cultural experience um but I certainly find that I mean I have this i tease one of my best friends, um, who who is a straight man who talks to me a lot about his romantic life. And sometimes I'll tell him that, oh, it's all going in the heterosexuality book, but, um, (laughs) just to freak him out a little bit, but, um, but no, I mean, certainly through speaking to him and, and my other male friends, I definitely see that there's no, um, you know, he, when I, other friends of ours or other people we know are talking about his uh sort of experience we're discussing his romantic life with him people always seem to assume that he is sort of out to harm women right and he's just has this like trail of like broken-hearted female victims in in his wake and this has been true you know even Um, When these women have been much older than him, when they are much more experienced, when they're incredibly successful, when, you know, all of these different configurations, when it's actually like there's, there's never, you know, I find that people are often telling him, like, be careful, like, be nice to her, don't hurt her. And it's just, it's really frustrating because at a certain point you know, first of all, as he often complains, like that doesn't leave him any space to get her, which is, I think, a very legitimate, um, you know, issue in a culture that does not allow men much vulnerability or like emotional expression or whatever, Um, but also it's so insulting to these women who, Mm -hmm. you know, many of whom I'm sure are in no way brokenhearted over, and you know, this is, I'm just using one example, but this is true, I think, of many, many, many um, people, many other friends, um, and again, yeah, so this retreat into this victim narrative for the women. Um, and, and yes, this idea that, that men are these sort of like evil, um, you know, caricatures within the heterosexual dynamic, which is just so reductive. And I don't think that anything gets
0: better until the conversation on their side starts. Um, because, it, yeah, it's really easy for us to fall into, um, you know, thinking about the character in The Woman Destroyed, sort of going back to her, where she's clearly suffering and, and, and trapped emotionally and, and sort of psychologically. Um, how many women pretend to be in that space yeah. <laughs> um, and, and within our culture um, yeah. because it it's easy and it, and it sort of gets some things. And I, and, and I think you mentioned that if that book had been written even 10 years later, like it kind of would have been yeah. um, awful. But there's something sort of radical about what she's doing um, um, at that specific point in time. Um, but yeah, I, I worry about the way women's culture responds to heterosexuality as much as I worry about um, the way male culture does.
1: Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I feel like this is my favorite opening to an academic book, maybe my favorite opening to any book, is uh, Lauren Ballant's Female Complaint, which begins, um, everyone knows what the female complaint is, women live for love and love is the gift that keeps on taking. And I think that, you know, I mean, in one sentence really summarizes... So many different aspects of this issue, I mean, one of which is that everyone knows what the female complaint is, you know, this is something we have, even the men who, you know, would not see a chick flick if you put a gun to their head, they know what this is, it's such a massive sort of foundational element of our culture, um, that it's really unavoidable. Um, and there's also you know this presumption that women live for love it's the gift that keeps on taking you know it's this sort of like horrible draining and yet totally necessary and life affirming thing for women and it's you know where are men in this they're not in the sentence they're not in that equation no one knows what the male complaint is Mm -hmm. no one knows how you know heterosexual men are really supposed to supposed to experience love beyond very kind of you know, absurd and simplistic ideas about, you know, men just want to have sex, like they just want to fuck like hot young women, you know, it's beyond that. There's just, there's nothing. Um, So yeah, no, I totally agree. I think, you know, hopefully there'll be some kind of, you know, space created in the culture of exploration of these things. And it seems
0: like there are so few alternatives in the sense that now that love is a choice, now that we're supposed to be somehow spiritually redeemed by love, like we've replaced God with like the, the romantic partner or some for <laughs> some fucked up reason. Um, now that it's not sort of um, explicitly a contract, now it's harder to find alternatives to that. And there are... Um, there's less infrastructure for living a life outside of the, the couple paradigm. You know, there used to be convents. There used to be the role of the spinster, and the spinster had a specific place in society, and she had a role to play um, within families and within communities. Um, but now that you, you just felt sorry for it, it's not a role that you take on now. It's something that you, um, I mean, everybody always a little, you know, except for like, you know, W Somerset mom and Henry James, <laughs> everybody else sort of, um, felt sorry for the spinster and whoever wrote Auntie Mame. Um, but, um, but now it's like, it's real pity. There, there's something wrong with you if you're not loved in our culture.
1: Yeah, certainly. It's sort of like the greatest emo- um, emotional pathology, right, is to say, I mean, I aspire to be a single person. <laughs> um, and But but no, it's true. I mean, from every angle, I, f- I personally find that I met with this kind of incredible, I think even, I mean, I, I'm not sure if I'm fully committed to this statement, but to some extent, I think the choice to be single is far less acceptable than the choice not to have children and I think that in our secular culture you know, these are sort of the two remaining hinges around which our lives are supposed to revolve right, and I actually do think, you know deciding not to have children is somewhat conventional, you know there are obviously many reasons that people cite for it, you know, including environmental factors or whatever, like this kind of, there's a way that you can, that this is sort of reach some level of widespread approval but the choice to be single certainly in in my experience indicate seems to indicate to people immediately that you know like something terrible you know must have happened um you know there must be some kind of really foundational trauma like of course this is not an acceptable lifestyle decision which i find so funny because you know i i'm a queer person like i i don't even have to deal with any of this heterosexual allergy stuff but nonetheless I mean looking at the level of anguish that all sort of uh, long-term monogamous certainly but even just the long-term couple form the level of anguish that creates in general and especially for people in straight relationships I'm kind I just feel a little bit like no you all are crazy for being committed (laughs) to this like clearly I'm the same one who's gonna sort of go through my life you know, emotionally intact. Although maybe that's <laughs> a little too optimistic.
0: Yeah, um, I was talking to a friend about this novel that was kind of not a, Big deal, but uh, certainly had a lot of buzz and, and in literary circles was a big deal. The uh, the sworn virgin about the Albanian. Um, so there's in Albanian culture this role for women where you can live um, in. A sort of, um, male form in male dress and you can work and that sort of stuff. And it's accepted as long as you take this pledge to always be a virgin. And so yeah. somebody wrote a novel about this and I'm sorry that I forgot her name, but, um, th- it happens. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll tweet it. Um, but, uh, so she sets this up and there's so much where this can go. There's so much that you can explore about gender norms and and adaptability and fluidity. And she has her fall in love. She has her fall in love and, and uh, have a conflict, you know, between, uh, and there's so little imagination around. um, Yeah. Other stories to tell. I think I'm going to keep coming back to that, but
1: yeah. It's, and it's sad because, you know, in, in, western queer culture for example i mean the thing that i find very depressing about that is that we had like our community had the alternative stories before marriage was legalized before it was normal um and expected for queer people to couple up in a monogamous duo and adopt children or whatever um you know we had all kinds of alternative stories of long standing committed relationships that were open of you know I would love to be the auntie, you know, this bit like the queer auntie, this figure that really, you know, has a pre existing narrative and yet that's really kind of falling away or being drowned out now by this, you know, suddenly we have marriage and children and the pre- pressure for normalcy and all of that kind of amazing work that, um, you know, first of all, it was just sort of like, I guess, creativity and, and I think based on on desire but also you know formed through trauma through you know issues like being excommunicated from family members from communities on account of being queer through the AIDS crisis obviously and a lot of issues around kind of forming kinship connections um you know an incredibly traumatic experience like all of this stuff, I feel like, has, is, has been a little bit cancelled out now that that these you know normative modes of being and relating to one another are available to us. And who knows? You know, hopefully they survive within the community and, and, and don't you know don't become completely marginal, but it's depressing.
0: <laughs> yeah, in the same way that feminists used to offer real critiques of marriage yeah. <laughs> and now all the feminists are married. And uh, uh, someone was interviewing me and asked me, you know, what is something that women can do right now that would create lasting social change? And I said, divorce your husbands. <laughs> it would, it absolutely would. If all women divorced their husbands in <laughs> mass, um, it would create a massive societal change. Um, not only because, you know, married men still live longer basically carried on the backs of their wives, um, than single men do. And, you know, married women live shorter lives and and are less healthy and less happy and and that sort of thing. But if you say that to somebody, they think that you are crazy. So the institution of marriage is, is a problem, but my marriage, you know, I've personally (laughs)
1: negotiated it so that it's fine.
0: It's fine.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I, I think that is very sort of representative about a certain r- relationship to feminism um, as a, a political way of being in the world. You know, right now in the West, that it, there's a sense that, you know, it's it's essentially all in your head and in very kind of gentle lifestyle choices you make, like you get married and maybe you hyphenate your surnames or something. Um but to do and i think that you know femin- feminists in the west really have a lot to learn from uh from whether or not they identify you know with that term feminist or not but from women in other parts of the world you know who you know have organized all kinds of sex strikes lately or other things like this um you know to great effect um and you know, who are not going to treat you like you're crazy for suggesting such a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I mean, it, It right now, I, f- yes, the notion of abstaining from marriage, which really in itself is not, not even that big a deal like, no. <laughs> compared to abstaining from sex, for example. Um, but yeah, it's treated as totally abhorrent. And also there
0: as the, like a health issue. Like if you, if you don't want marriage, is it, it's not a healthy relationship. The word "health," I feel like, is thrown around as a, as a system of control for women. Of um, these are the healthy things to want, and these are the unhealthy <laughs> things to want. Which means that you're experiencing some sort of brain damage or psychological trauma if you want something that's not in the the healthy category
1: yes completely i mean i feel like this we could talk for days about this but no i totally agree i mean it's it's very true that we're sort of living in these neo-victorian times where health and wellness and you know all of these this sort of like whether it's you know environmentally conscious consumption or going to the gym or you know being vegan or whatever is is our new paradigm of morality um and certainly like I actually until now hadn't really thought about this um in terms of relationships but that's completely true as well and I mean also the use of the word toxic which is which Mm -hmm. is interesting because you know on the one hand you have have all of these like kind of fake nutritionists talking about toxins (laughs) and like how you get them in and out of your body yes um but you know toxic is also one of the sort of most commonly used words both I would say within feminist and activist circles right now and also just women's culture in general Um, and part of me feels like there's a a sort of move happening at the moment where um you know whether it's characterizing all straight white men as toxic Mm -hmm. or you know just some kind of like a bad subset of them you know grouping off a whole group of people and calling them abusers and toxic people, toxic behaviour. I mean, it's clearly deeply related to all of this pseudoscience about, <laughs> like, you know, physical toxins from, you know, alcohol or cheese or whatever that you know are supposedly destroying us. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I do feel like we could talk about those for the next,
0: uh, eight hours, but, uh, we're kind of out of time. Um, so we'll just have to, you know, write a book on the subject and <laughs> get empty. it, get it over with. Um, thank you so much. Thank you.
1: This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Brett Boehm. For more podcasts, please visit Forever Dog Productions.com.